1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I'm always struck by the fact that when you come to the end uh, of any of Paul's epistles, you always find this final bestowal of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And if you compare uh, the last verse in just about any of Paul's epistles with the opening verses, you will find that um, uh, in the opening of his epistles, there is always a bestowal of grace and mercy also. So that in just about every one of Paul's letters, there may be one exception to this, but in just about all of them, you begin with grace and you end with grace. And so you could say that Every subject that Paul is dealing with is sandwiched in these uh, bookends, if I could change the metaphor, of grace. And don't we know it takes the grace of God to understand and appropriate these epistles? So whether or not you're dealing with all the problems that confront the Corinthian church, or whether or not you are just uh, encouraging the church at Thessalonica or the church at Philippi. You need grace in the beginning. You need grace at the end. It takes the grace of God pretty much to do anything when it comes to the Christian life. There is a text from 2 Timothy that oftentimes I silently uh, recite to myself right before I stand up to preach and it's that verse, I believe it's in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many here would remember this, but that was actually one of our motto texts for <laughs> one of the years way back when. And uh, don't ask me when, but, uh, but it was such a text. And so, now again, I call your attention to that verse we studied this morning, verse 23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.
I didn't point this out this morning, but I bring it to your attention right now that there is an emphasis in this section on prayer. You look with me at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Verse 18. In everything, give thanks. Okay, thanks is a form of prayer. Verse 23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 25, brethren, pray for us. So not hard to pick up on an emphasis on prayer in this closing section of the epistle. And even Paul, as great a, a, a spiritual giant as he was, he certainly recognized, didn't he, his own dependence upon God, and so coveted the prayers of the believers at Thessalonica. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. And by paying attention to such things as Christ's view of prayer and Christ's use of prayer, as well as the apostles' view of prayer and their use of prayer, we will certainly be challenged and encouraged and instructed to seek the Lord's face in prayer, as well we should. In verse 23, you'll notice that the reference to prayer is in italics, the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray God, that's in italics, that means that's not part of the original Greek text, but it is something that the translator supplied to give clarity to the translation. And certainly the idea of prayer, if the term prayer is not mentioned, the idea of prayer certainly comes across plainly. You might look at this verse as sort of an apostolic benediction, and a benediction is a form of prayer. So our King James translators knew what they were doing by supplying the words, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather interesting to note that this 23rd verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 is a verse that touches upon so many different doctrines in very concise fashion. You have in this verse, and this was the topic of our study this morning, and we'll say a little bit about this this afternoon as well. You certainly have in this verse the doctrine of sanctification. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I think you could say you have sanctification addressed from two different perspectives. You have what could be called positional sanctification, and at least by implication, and you have what uh, could be called also practical sanctification, which I think is what is uh, more largely in view. But in addition to the doctrine of sanctification, would you notice that you have the doctrine of man touched upon in this verse in a very unusual way. Uh, a verse, you could say, that applies to, in theological jargon, anthropology, the doctrine of man. This is one of those 
key verses that is used by those who subscribe to a trichotomist view of man. That is the doctrine that man is made up of spirit and soul and body. There are others, and in fact this would be the majority, especially in reform circles, that hold to the dichotomist view of man. That is the view that he is made up just of soul and body. Now, how can we not be trichotomist when you have such a clear statement about body, soul, and spirit? And Paul's prayer that you be sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. And there is another text in Hebrews that makes that same distinction. But here's where the challenge comes in. Here is why many of the reformers uh, did not and do not espouse a trichotomist view, uh, how do you draw a distinction between soul and spirit? What is the difference between them? And many Bible studies have been taken up that suggest certain properties for the soul. The soul embraces the intellect and the will. Uh, the spirit uh, embraces the affections and so on. The trouble is that when you begin to draw up scriptural references to make your case, you will find that affection sometimes are referred to as the soul, and that affection sometimes are referred to as the spirit. And so it is not easy at all to draw the kind of distinctions that they would endeavor to draw between soul and spirit. We do know, and this is beyond controversy, that there are two parts to man, the material part of man, the body, the flesh, and an immaterial part of man, which we refer to as the soul. That's beyond controversy. I kind of like Dr. Cairn's take on it uh, back in his day. He believes there probably, he doesn't... Uh, or he didn't uh, subscribe to this with a strong degree of dogmatism, but it was his view that there is a distinction between soul and spirit, but we don't know how to make that distinction. God alone would know how to make such a distinction. Okay, I can live with that. That makes sense. And... Uh, but that's the challenge anyway, the distinction between soul and spirit, when so many aspects of one can be attributed to the other, and you find scripture verses that go back and forth with it. Uh, maybe we'll take up that study um, one of these days. would make a good study for a Sunday school class sometime. And by the way, since I mentioned Sunday school, I meant to put this in uh, the announcement sheet. We are going to resume. Sunday school. The Paulsons have offered to, in a sense, let us into their Sunday school class by bringing it here to church. They have been going through the study of Pilgrim's Progress. And they have the edition of the book that was created some time ago uh, by Stephen Lee. And uh, Sermon Audio founder Answers in Genesis, I think, took up that uh, publication from Stephen. And that's the addition that the Paulsons have. 
they've offered to start over at the beginning. So I would uh, highly recommend Sunday school. Um, I need to talk to them. We haven't set a beginning time yet, but uh, depending on how soon they get over their uh, colds and flus and whatnot, uh, we will look to start uh, real soon, the next week or two. Anyway, that's by the way. So, we have the doctrine of man touched upon in our text, as well as the doctrine of sanctification. I think it's fair that, uh, to say that you can also find the doctrine of justification touched upon in the text, at least by implication, to see ourselves as blameless is to see ourselves as justified. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To see ourselves as blameless really is to see ourselves as justified. To see our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, and so the grounds for us being viewed blameless is found in the fact that our Savior is blameless and we are joined to him. So you see the number of doctrines that are contained in this text, all the various branches of theology that are touched upon, sanctification, the doctrine of man, justification by way of implication, as well as the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Okay, look at it again. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see at a glance that in this single verse of Scripture, it is very rich in the many areas that it touches upon. You could really use this text, I suppose, as a springboard into any one of these branches of theology. It is there so concisely expressed. Well, this afternoon, just for a moment or two, I want to consider the text as it relates to prayer. Paul is praying that these believers might be sanctified wholly and that they might be preserved blameless and at first glance, it would be tempting to think the text poses a challenge to us. Paul must pray that we be preserved blameless. Does such a prayer suggest the possibility that we might not be preserved blameless? Have we somehow attained a blameless condition which we might lose if we fail to make this prayer our own? The Roman Catholics would say amen. Their doctrine of justification teaches that when you place your faith in Christ, righteousness is imparted to you. You are made blameless, and then it becomes your obligation, with the church's help, of course, to preserve or maintain your condition of being blameless. And it's important that we recognize this as a deviant view of justification. I'm afraid that in such a day as ours, when doctrine as a whole, in large measure, is set aside, and unity is being sought at the expense of doctrine, then it becomes acceptable, 
especially in New Evangelical circles, to simply accept a doctrinal view of any Christian church that uses the terms faith or salvation or justification. Are you aware that the Church of Rome has never been without a doctrine of justification? It would be fair to say that Rome has always had a doctrine of justification, even justification by faith. You can't begin to discern the differences until you start defining the terms. And that's part of the problem with, uh, uh, I'm afraid, wishy-washy Christianity today. Use the term, oh, okay, we're, yeah, we're, they're all right. They believe in justification. Don't ask them what they mean by it. That's just getting too deep into things we don't really care about and have no practical ramifications. And that's what's made it easy today for Christianity to blend into one big melting pot of uh, gospel compromisers. But to return to our text, the question naturally arises, why does Paul need to pray that these believers would be preserved blameless? Was there a possibility that they would not be preserved that way? If the believer's righteousness is found in Christ, then won't he be preserved blameless as long as he's in Christ? Is there some danger that he may lose his union with Christ? We know, of course, that there is no such danger. You will not lose your union with Christ. Christ himself said, John 10 and verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You see, the believer's security stressed very strongly by that statement of Christ. No man can pluck them out of Christ's hand, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. You discover, in a sense then, if I could use the term, double omnipotence. The hand of Christ and the hand of His Father. And we are held by both. Well, that means we're secure. Paul expresses the confidence of this security when he writes to the Corinthians, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 7 and 8. In similar fashion, Jude expresses that confidence in his little epistle, when he writes, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Boy, there's a text that's worth highlighting that we are so kept. God is able to keep us from falling. God is able to present you as faultless 
before the presence of his Father's glory. And this is something that Christ will do, not reluctantly, not regretfully, but with exceeding joy. He will present us to his Father, faultless, because of our union with him. So when Paul prays for the Thessalonians to be preserved blameless, he's not making reference to their position. He's making reference to that blamelessness that must be established by the Christian in this realm before men. Blameless before men. Okay? We are to strive to measure up to our position and so be blameless before others. We are to strive for that. May God help us to do so. This is what Paul prays. Uh, and, and you can cross-reference this to a text in uh, Psalm 25, a Psalm of David, when in the last, or near the last uh, verse in that Psalm, he prays, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. I think this meaning of the text becomes even clearer when you see the qualification Paul places on it, May your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is being pronounced or prayed for in this benediction is to be applied to the whole believer, and it is to be applied to him until Christ returns. When Christ returns, then our sanctification will be complete. We will at last measure up to our position, for when we see him, John writes in his first epistle, we shall be like him. Oh, here is sanctification, reaching the goal, being like Christ, which will happen when we see him and become like him. So we're dealing with a practical aspect of sanctification. Now when we think of sanctification, and we touched on this this morning, we usually think of it in terms of the spiritual battles that we fight. We fight against the flesh, and we fight against the world, and we fight against the devil. The battle is often hard, progress at times seems slow, and it cannot be denied that we suffer setbacks and defeats along the way. What I love again about that larger catechism answer that I cited, that we read together, it recognizes the reality of that. It seems that sometimes our progress is so slow as to be barely detectable. We know that in the realm of our sanctification, we must take to ourselves the whole armor of God, and we must resist the devil and his fiery darts that are hurled against us, and we do wrestle against the spiritual forces of darkness. I find it interesting, however, that even though we are and should be engaged in such a fierce battle, Paul's benediction nevertheless is that the very God of peace sanctify you holy? I made that a sub-point in the message this morning. We're sometimes tempted, I suppose, to think we're fighting against God himself when it comes to our sanctification. 
But in fact, our success in the battle depends in large measure in our knowing and acknowledging by faith that our fight isn't against God. We're at peace with Him. We may be fighting any number of battles, any number of spiritual foes. God's not among them. No, that battle has been ended. And uh, Christ has conquered us. We belong to Him. We've surrendered, even as we sang this morning. And we're at peace with God. And it is through that peace that the strength for our battle is gained. We must reckon upon the truth that we are blameless before God because Christ is blameless before God and we are found in Him. And this is where faith enters the picture. I'm not looking at myself. You're not to look at yourself. When we look to our own strength or our own merit, we have to conclude that we are anything but blameless. We're thoroughly defiled spirit, soul, and body. But we are also at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of our peace. He's, his provision is what brings peace to our souls. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How then do we become blameless in the practical sense of the term? Well, I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you see how we strive to reach that standard of blameless? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And there's some similarities between what Paul says to the Corinthians and what he says in 1 Corinthians 5.23. Both are dealing with sanctification or the pursuit of holiness. Both deal with the whole man, flesh and spirit, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. But the text in 2 Corinthians presents us with the idea of the promises. Having therefore these promises... Or in other words, the promises of salvation, the promise of peace, the promise of righteousness, the promise of God's help. Perfecting holiness or being preserved blameless requires that we prayerfully make use of the promises of Christ that pertain to salvation. And that's how we advance in our sanctification. We appropriate the promises of the gospel by faith in the place of prayer. We seek enabling grace to empower us to believe the gospel day by day, moment by moment. I know I've shared with you that time when I used to uh, go to work with Dr. Allison. We lived in Greenville. We were both janitors in the high school during the summer months. We went over there to clean, and usually Dr. Allison would drive us both, and we would have a time of prayer during uh, the brief journey there. It only took two minutes to get there. And I've never forgotten one of Dr. Allison's prayers, Lord, help me to believe the gospel today. Help me to believe it 
throughout this day. For Lord, if I uh, am manifesting faith in the gospel, I will be ready for whatever this day brings to me. So help me to believe today. Day by day, moment by moment. And in that power, the power of peace, the power of thanksgiving, we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Peter captures this same idea in his epistle when he writes in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Exceeding great and precious promises. Make use of them, dear believer. Know what they are. Commit them to memory. Review them often. Utilize them in the place of prayer and you will go a long way in advancing your sanctification. The place of prayer then is the place where we put the gospel of Christ into practice. As we reckon upon the truth that in Christ we are blameless, then God imparts the strength to our souls to measure up to that blamelessness. This comes through conviction of sin. It comes through faith in Christ. It comes through realizing that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. May God indeed then sanctify us wholly and preserve us, our whole spirit and soul and body blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do pray that the very God of peace would indeed sanctify us wholly. We marvel, O oh Lord, at the glorious truth that in Christ we are found faultless. We marvel at this, and yet we know that it's not in the realm of make-believe. There's a just basis for it. Our sins really were imputed to Christ. His righteousness really is imputed to us. There is a basis, therefore, for God to see us the way he does in Christ. May the truth of it impact our lives and motivate us to strive in our sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.